Welcome back to episode two. Uh, Maple's here with us. Well, no, not anymore. <laughs> it means a lot to me that two of you uh, joined the Patreon, which I just kind of quietly put in a comment. I didn't even really make much fuss about it, and you guys found it and signed up. That, that really does mean a lot. And I'm glad to finally bring you episode two, which has been, it's been two months since I recorded the first one. So let's get right into it here. This is episode two of Glimpses of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nothing Divine Dies. It's a summer afternoon in 1813, and all of Boston has climbed onto their roofs to watch two ships do battle. A young Ralph Waldo Emerson is there too, hardly ten years old, watching the HMS Shannon enter the Boston Harbor. The British ship whirled around the calm waters like an animal trying to provoke a fight. Its captain sent a message to shore, ordering the dock Chesapeake into battle, but the American ship had set sail before they received the invitation. From the rooftops, Emerson watched both ships drift peaceably out to open waters, a swarm of small pedestrian boats following not far behind. At 4 p.m., the Chesapeake opened fire, and within 15 minutes, 71 men were dead and 180 were wounded. The British boarded the American ship and imprisoned the surviving crew. They found its captain below deck wounded by small arms fire. He would die of his injuries three days later, as the British sailed him and his ship and his men to Nova Scotia. There, the Americans would be locked in prisoner of war camps, and their ship would be enlisted in the Royal Navy, and then sold, and then stripped for parts. Nineteen years later, in December of 1832, Emerson departed from that same harbor. We heard about his tragic condition in episode one. He's trying to escape it now, to leave America for a few months to see if the world might dance again. When he arrived at the dock, he looked so broken and terrible that the captain nearly turned him away, worried that he wouldn't be alive by the time they got to Europe. But Emerson climbed aboard, and they sailed into the gray Atlantic right into a vast gathering storm. Sailed from Boston for Malta, he writes in his journal, in Brig Jasper, Captain Ellis, 236 tons laden with logwood, mahogany, tobacco, sugar, coffee, beeswax, and cheese. A long storm from the second morn of our departure considered all the five passengers to the irremediable chagrins of the stateroom, to wit nausea, darkness, unrest, uncleanness, harpy appetite and harpy feeding, the ugly sound of water in mine ears. This was a long and difficult voyage for Emerson, but there were moments of beauty and observations made at sea that would come back to him later when he was writing nature. Here's one of them. He's sitting beneath the ship mast, this massive sheet that's diffusing the intensity of the sunlight and the gusts of wind into a calm blue little shadowy nook. I rose at sunrise, he writes in his journal, and under the lee of that Spencer sheet had a solitary thoughtful hour. All right thought is devout. He quotes somebody here. The clouds were touched and in their silent faces might be read unutterable love, end quote. They shone with the light that shines on Europe, Africa, and the Nile, and I opened my spirit's ear to their most ancient hymn. What, they said to me, goest thou so far to see? 
Painted canvases, carved marble, renowned towns, but fresh from us, new evermore is the creative afflux from whence these works spring. You feel now, gazing at our fleecy arc of light, the motions that express themselves in arts. It animates men. It is the America of America. It spans the ocean like a handbreadth. It smiles at time and space. Ye need not go so far to seek what you would not seek at all if it were not within you. So sang in my ear the silver-gray mist, and the winds and the sea said Amen. What a thought. All art is derived from the same thing, Emerson tells us. Why are you traveling so far to see limited interpretations of some inexhaustible force that you can find in your own yard or in your own person? What an unsettling thing to ask yourself before you even get to Europe. This is classic Emerson, flipping everything that's comfortable on its head and then looking at it from a different light. Now let's look at the matured echo of this sentiment that we find in his essay, Nature. Nothing divine dies. All good is eternally reproductive. The beauty of nature reforms itself in the mind, and not for barren contemplation, but for new creation. The production of a work of art throws a light upon the mystery of humanity. A work of art is an abstract or epitome of the world. It is the result or expression of nature in miniature. For although the works of nature are innumerable and all different, the result or expression of them all is similar or single. Nature is a sea of forms radically alike and even unique. A leaf, a sunbeam, a landscape, the ocean make an analogous impression on the mind. What is common to them all, that perfectness and harmony, is beauty. A single object is only so far beautiful as it suggests this universal grace. Thus is art a nature passed through the alembic of man. Thus in art does nature work through the will of man, filled with the beauty of her first works. It's quite the passage. In these quiet, solitary moments, hidden away in pleasant little corners of the world like Emerson in the lee of the Spencer sheet, don't these kinds of ruminations feel so sensible? They strike us as personally true. And if life is figuring out how to navigate within all of its uncertainties and contradictions, then connecting with this personal truth, this nexus between us and the world, is essential. Emerson will have many more of these moments where he recognizes, quote, the occult relation between man and the vegetable. We, we heard about this in the last episode. It's in those poetic moments that the waving of the boughs strikes him as old and new, as universal and personal. It's as though the largest and smallest resolutions of life can finally coexist. You can enjoy your temporary self and the temporary world, but also the eternal forces that underlie and give rise to it. We need these moments, Emerson thinks. They season and humble us. They show us what's trivial and what's essential. That's why Emerson would rather talk to a farmer than a philosopher, a sailor than a professor. The most noble and well-adjusted of them have been seasoned in the world, he thinks, and have a straight and cutting grammar that does away with excesses and pretension. They see and think poetically in natural forces and symbols. It's just truth as they find it, the world as they relate to it. He writes about this in Nature. 
As we go back in history, language becomes more picturesque until its infancy, when it's all poetry, or all spiritual facts are represented by natural symbols. The same symbols are found to make the original elements of all languages. This immediate dependence of language upon nature, this conversion of an outward phenomenon into a type of somewhat in human life, never loses its power to affect us. It is this which gives that piquancy to the conversation of a strong-natured farmer or backwoodsman which all men relish. A man's power to connect his thought to its proper symbol, and so to utter it, depends on the simplicity of his character, that is, upon his love for truth, and his desire to communicate it without loss. The corruption of man is followed by the corruption of language, when simplicity of character and the sovereignty of ideas is broken up by the prevalence of secondary desires, the desire of riches, of pleasure, of power, and of praise, and duplicity and falsehood take place of simplicity and truth. The power over nature as an interpreter of the will is in a degree lost. New imagery ceases to be created, and old words are perverted to stand for things which they are not. A paper currency is employed when there is no boolean in the vaults. In due time the fraud is manifest, and words lose all power to stimulate the understanding or the affections. Hundreds of writers may be found in every long civilized nation, who for a short time believe and make others believe that they see and utter truths who do not of themselves close one thought in its natural garment, but who feed unconsciously on the language created by the primary writers of the country, those, namely, who hold primarily on nature. So nothing divine dies, right? Art is a secondary interpretation of the first work of nature. That first primordial eternal beauty works through the iambic of man, he says, beautiful alchemical phrasing, into a work of art. But some artists look at other artists and then derive their own beauty from their beauty. And now we're talking about third degree and fourth degree and fifth degree beauty. It isn't that it can't be good, but it isn't attached to those primordial symbols of nature. Emerson is saying we can't forget that all of the beauty that we do have, even the great works of art, are derived from that and we cannot continue to derive from derivations and derive from their derivations without losing more and more and more. So what should we do, right? Learn how to speak without reducing the object of our thinking, which is very challenging. If you've ever had a realization or a beautiful moment and you tried to explain it to somebody and you just could not do it, it's almost like you need to be a poet right, to properly communicate the things that are happening to you. Language tries so hard to capture the first beauty of nature. It, we forget, as the arbiters of language, that it is a completely insufficient means to capture it. In his journal, still on his way to Europe, we see an early realization of this fascinating theory of language. Headwinds are sore vexations, and the more passengers, the sorer. Yesterday the captain killed a porpoise, and I witnessed the cutting up of my mammiferous fellow creature in this little balloon of ours, so far from the human family and their sages and colleges and manufactories, every accomplishment, every natural or acquired talent, every piece of information is some time in request. A short voyage will show the difference between the man and the apprentice. 
honor evermore aboard the ship to the man of action, to the brain in the hand. Here is our stout master, worth a thousand philosophers, a man who can strike a porpoise and make oil out of his blubber and stake out of his meat, who can thump a mutineer into obedience in two minutes, who can bleed a sick sailor and mend the box of his pump, who can ride out the roughest storm on the American coast, and more than all, with the sun and a three-cornered bit of wood and a chart, can find his way from Boston across 3,000 miles of stormy weather into a little gut of inland sea nine miles wide, with as much precision as if led by a clue. Uh, once again, we see a man who is seasoned by nature who lets down his personally walls and lets the forces of the world in. He accepts himself as one of those forces too, finding no clear line between action and thought or between himself and nature. Emerson would arrive in Malta in February of 1833, but his adventures in Europe deserve their own episodes. So we're going to move past them just for now. Trust me, it's what has to be done. And we're going to bring him back to Boston. Many months later, in October of 1833, he's 30 now, and he's just returning from his nine-month trip. It is strange to be back. The previous years stretch behind him like a dark corridor. His loss of faith, his resignation from the church, the death of his beloved wife, Ellen. The last time Emerson stood on American soil, he was hollowed out. But he had felt beauty and inspiration before, too. In short spurts while reading and writing, walking around the wild and tamed American landscapes, he wanted to make a river of those feelings and swim in it. Perhaps in Europe he finally did. He had few obligations there beyond living fully and sharing drinks with his literary heroes. There, he was free to study science and nature and art. He was free to wander around the great ruins and cities and towns, to sulk in open fields when he felt he'd embarrassed himself in some conversation, or to boldly approach his idols and win their affection. Emerson is no Chesapeake, far from stripping him from parts as time in England has built him out. It also reminded him of those inimitable qualities of his own country, of early America. For everything Europe gave him, by the end of his trip, Emerson was eager, restless even, to go home. Perhaps it's that new world condition of wanting to smash the old world, but having a secret yearning for it too. Emerson had sated that hunger and saw in every great artist he met a plain, sometimes profound, but always possible person one that he or anyone could become. That's a strange thing to think about, that Emerson needed Europe. After all, he would soon become the author or codifier of the American spirit, calling all of his countrymen to originality. The world isn't finished, he seems to tell us, about half a century after America was founded. It should be new to us every day. America needs a first philosophy, and its formulation is in reach of every man and every woman with a beating heart. He wants them to see the world come alive, to find design everywhere, though not necessarily a designer. To construct their own lives rather than outsource their pieces, 
to follow their own hard-earned conclusions rather than the trappings of charming men and charming women whose thoughts are more attractive than they are rigorous. There's eloquence and then there's truth. There are politicians and then there's Shakespeare. Emerson knows what makes the difference, and it isn't private school or the Ivy League. It isn't money or a condescending tongue. It isn't obfuscation or purple prose. It is something much harder, but much more enriching. It is finding an original relation to the universe. It's connecting your thoughts and language with the world that gave rise to them. It's learning how to make days of moments and an eternity of a lifetime. It's learning how to be quiet and thoughtful, how to trust your private thoughts or have thoughts worth trusting. It is nature and it's literature. It's knowing that life consists in what you are thinking of all day. Man is the dwarf of himself, Emerson says. We see that the world still fits us, but fits us colossally. Have we become tamed, he wants us to ask. Has life become bare? Are we naturally outsized by nature, or should our mental lives rival it? Man is the dwarf of himself. That line could haunt you if you let it. Should the world and our position in it feel tame and expected and linear, or should the mind turn to nature, feel like one mere turn to another, where one effortlessly becomes a million? That right there is transcendentalism, or at least its central movement. Right, that is a new way of thinking for Emerson, and he sketched it all out on a folded piece of paper in his pocket. He's back in America, now renewed, and he has brought the skeleton of the essay that will start the rest of his life. That essay is Nature, which will be published in 1836. You can feel his liberation in it. He is bold and impassioned, collapsing the full world into his hands and then rebuilding it as he sees fit. Nature is a constellation of many voices, but their order and image are uniquely Emerson's. There are hints of Plato and remnants of his Unitarian days. There are his schoolboy idols, the young Harvard professor Edward Everett, whose eloquence and passion set his lectures on fire. The master student Samson Reed, whose stirring debut oration on genius showed Emerson that a young man could be as sharp as any other. There's Swedenborg and Carlyle and Goethe, and of course there's Ellen's ghost. But there are also all of the ghosts he won't see. I've always wondered if his father was one of them. He died when Emerson was eight, and I read that he isn't mentioned once in his 230 journals. It's hard to tell if this is an absence or a black hole. Was his father inconsequential? to his son, or did his death have a gravitational pull, swirling Emerson around it, perhaps beyond his awareness? Maybe we'll explore that in a future episode. But more than anyone else in nature, there is his Aunt Mary Moody Emerson, a four-foot-three volcano of a woman who had her bed fashioned after a coffin. She spent all her life developing her own brilliant theology, and she set Emerson's standard for genius as much as his mother set his standard for warmth and affection. But what matters today is this. If we could spend a moment in Emerson's head, feeling all of the books and ideas, the pain and renewal, the thoughts and experiences, the many ghosts guiding his hands, I think it would sound a lot like nature. So go read it. <laughs>
I've queued you up for it the best I can. We're in the after show now. So I want to quickly cover the sources I used to cobble together this script. This one in particular came almost entirely from Emerson's journal and from his essay Nature. But there is always, always, always guidance from the great Robert D. Richardson's book The Mind on Fire, where I learned about the Boston Harbor naval skirmish that Emerson watched. There's just no escaping it. Richardson spent a decade retracing Emerson's steps, reading what he read, going where he went, digging into the letters and journals that he wrote. If you want a more coherent and methodical look at Emerson, more than this kind of meandering show that I'm cobbling together here, then I can't recommend it enough. But if you want a messy and meandering and enthusiastic one, then I'm here to provide that. <laughs> Before I go, I, I want to thank the nearly 200 of you who have joined my little project here, and the one of you, well, two of you now, since I wrote this script, who have supported the show on Patreon, that I really expected would be uh, far too niche to garner any attention. So the fact that you guys are here and that you're behind it, uh, I really I appreciate that. So ask any questions you have, ideas for videos, things you want to hear more about with Emerson. Um, there might be a Q&A one day, so if you have questions about that, feel free to let me know. I'm going to go ahead and close this down. Uh, thank you for showing up and for, for uh, spending some time with me. It really does mean a lot. And I will see you in the next video.